Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. But think about who's the boss around here. It ain't me. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the church universal. He's the head of this church. Our church doesn't have a head other than Jesus Christ. We have people that serve here and that work here, that minister here. But Christ is actually the leader of this church. We submit to him through prayer, through Bible study, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, one of our youngsters said, asked me, we're sitting here in the sanctuary and shortly after we came here, and they said, do you own this church? I said, no, I don't own this church. I said, I said, if you look around, I said, all oh, those people own this church. I said, I, I don't own this church. She said, oh, you're the president. I said, no, I'm not the president. I said, I said, we do have a president, and we do have a president. Y'all may not be aware of this. We are, we're incorporated, and uh, because we're incorporated, I think Ken Strebel is our president. I think Jerry Jeffries is actually our vice president. Isn't it? Is that right? I think it's Ken Strebel and Jerry Jeffries are our president and vice president. We actually do have a president and a vice president. That's because we're incorporated. We have to, by law, and uh, we have a trustee, too. That might be Myra as the trustee, or you're the secretary. But we have a president, a vice president, a, tr- a, a trustee, and, and we, don't, we have something else besides those two. Okay, there we go. Jerry's one of them, anyway. And Ken Street was the president. <laughs> I don't know who all they are. Uh, they're not my president. They're your president. But uh, anyway... She asked me, she said, so you're president around here? I said, no. <clears throat> she said, are you at least the boss? <laughs> I said, no, honey. I said, we really don't have a boss around here. I said, Jesus is our boss, and we try to do what he would have us to do, what he wants us to do. And we get our direction from him. We get our marching orders from him, how we spend our money. Everything we do, we try to get from him so that we bring honor and glory to God. In this passage in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 18, is telling us who the boss is. And uh, you might have thought you were the boss around here. Sorry, it ain't you. And it ain't me either. It really is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would have it no other way. Because anytime you begin to, to put a human uh, in that position that the Lord occupies, you get in trouble. And uh, I like the way our church is organized. We're organized around the church council. And uh, that's the chair of every ministry in our church from beginning to end. And we all get around together and plan the calendar, bang it out, and talk it out. And I like the way that we're led. We really don't have a boss. We have a group of bosses that serve the big boss. And I'm grateful for the way we're, we're designed in our Constitution. It's a good way to be, to be led. Join me in Colossians chapter 1. Scripture tells us, speaking of Jesus Christ, that... He is the head of the body. And then Paul tells us what the body is. It's the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so he's defining for us who he is, Jesus Christ, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now this is an interesting thought. Scripture could have said all people because we think about people needing redemption. But notice Paul says all things. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, 
all of creation fell. It was not just the man and the woman. Everything fell. Before the fall, poison ivy didn't make you get blisters. There was poison ivy around, but it probably didn't hurt you. There were probably mosquitoes around. They didn't bite you. Y'all may not know this. Only the female mosquitoes bite. That's the truth. Uh, many homes are like that. But uh, the other homes, the male is the one doing the biting. But uh, only the female bites because that's how she lays her eggs. The male gets their nourishment from plants. They stick their little sticky thing in grass and weeds and things like that. So even back then, mosquitoes didn't hurt. Everything fell. And so when Jesus reconciled creation, he reconciled the whole shooting match, all of it. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. And then Paul helps us understand what everything is. He says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now that gives us a new understanding too, that when creation fell, there was some part beyond this earth that also fell and needed reconciling. Otherwise, God would not have reconciled outside our atmosphere. So within, on this planet earth, and within all of creation, Jesus is involved in the act of reconciliation. And what he did was he made peace, or made that reconciliation, through his blood shed on the cross. Without the cross, there is no blood. Without the blood, there is no reconciliation. Without reconciliation, then we are not reconciled to God. If we are not reconciled to God, we are doomed to remain in the place that Adam and Eve created, which is God's enemy. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God, and in that alienation from God, as a lost person, you were enemies, in your minds, we just, the way we think, the way we reason, the way we feel, is by nature, by birth, in need of reconciliation because it's anti-God. We're born lost in need of salvation. And we're enemies because in our minds and because of our evil behavior. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you, that you being the whole of you, the mind of you, the soul of you, the spirit of you, even the body of you. Now the reconciliation of the body of you won't happen until after the resurrection from the dead, the great white throne judgment and all that in end times, but there is a reconciliation of our body. We will get a new body just as Christ had a new body. So it's a complete reconciliation. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, and he reconciled you through death. Why through death? So that, and he tells us here, so that he might present you holy in his sight. In God's sight, you're holy. Now you might feel dirty because of past or present sin. You might feel dirty and unholy because of choices and decisions you've made in the past. But according to this passage, that's baloney. The one who's telling you that stuff is the devil. Because in God's sight, what are you? 
What are you? Holy. Every one of you in this room that know Christ as your Lord and Savior, in God's sight, you're holy. Because you've been reconciled. You've been forgiven. And he wants to present you holy in his sight. Well, what's it mean to be holy? The root of the Hebrew word for holy is normal. God wants to present you normal. Well, what was normal? Normal was Adam and Eve before the fall. They were normal. After the fall, they became abnormal. They became sick with sin. And so God wants to present us holy in his sight. So what does it mean to be holy in God's sight? That means when you're reconciled to, through, to God through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, God sees you without blemish. That means no mistakes, no scratches, no scuffs, no dents, no scars, no nothing. He sees you without blemish. And not only are you without blemish, you can't even be accused of a blemish. Because he says that you are without blemish and free from accusation. When Jesus Christ reconciles you, it is so profound and complete that no one can even accuse you of being dirty and blemished and unholy because Jesus Christ's blood has made you complete in the area of forgiveness. If you continue in the faith. Now what he's saying here is not that you can lose your faith, but that you can have a false faith. When I was 12 years old, or maybe younger than that, I walked down the aisle, I may have shared this before. Many of you have had a similar experience. I walked down front, my best friend, Brian Eddington, his dad, at that time, his dad, Mr. Eddington, met me at the altar. I think he was a deacon in the church we were going to. And I walked down front, knelt at the altar, prayed, or didn't pray. He prayed, asked Jesus to save me, and I got up, was pronounced saved, and they baptized me probably the next Sunday or the week or two after. I didn't pray a prayer. I wanted to be saved. I was authentic in my desire to be saved, but I just walked up front and listened to someone else pray about what salvation is, and I didn't pray a prayer. Now, from the time I was 12 to the time I was 17, in my heart, I knew I was lost. I knew it. I had too much pride, though, to say that I wasn't lost. I had too much pride. I didn't want to hurt Mr. Eddington's feelings or Brian, my best friend at that time's feelings, saying that it was false. But I had a false faith. I had no faith. Paul says, if you continue in your faith. I had no faith to continue in. I had a false faith. A fake faith. A pretend faith. So if your faith is authentic and it's real, then you're without blemish and no one can even accuse you. He says, because that kind of faith is established and firm. Not established and firm because of who you are, but because of who he is. And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, he didn't say every person. Every creature. Why every creature? Because all of creation had to be reconciled. All of creation will bow their knee and confess that Christ is Lord. Whether they be birds or people, 
because Christ is supreme over all, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's think about what's here. We're going to try to do this in 14 minutes. God bless you. We ain't going to make it. There are lots of images in the New Testament about of what a church is and to help us understand the idea and the image of a New Testament church. And, but the description of the body that Paul uses in this passage is probably the most important when he says that Jesus is the, the body, the body is, uh, the Christ's body is the church. And, and there's, there's no denomination that can say we're the body of the church. Baptists can't say we're the body of the church. Church of Christ can't say we're the body of the church. Catholics can't say it. There's no denomination that can say that we're the body of the church and nobody else is. Because the body of the church of Jesus Christ universal is not bound by a denomination, not bound by a location, a language it's spoken, or a country. In truth, the body is composed of all true believers around the world throughout all time. It's every Christian everywhere, no matter what language they speak, what church they're a part of, or no church that they're a part of. There's some places where people are coming to Christ where there is no specific church for them to, to be a member of because it's just illegal and they would die in those countries. So there's no official church, but they're still believers because they know Christ is their personal Lord and Savior. And Paul says that when a person trusts in Christ, he's helping us understand that there's an immediate transaction. What makes you a member of the church universal, the body of Christ, is that moment of faith when you say, yes, Lord, I believe, save me and forgive me for my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. However it is that you phrase that prayer uh, out of Romans 10, 9, and 10. However it is that you constructed that, to, to, and you don't have to be those exact words, there's no special formula, but whenever it was that you said that prayer and you meant it from your heart, whether you spoke it in your mind or said it with your lips, however you conveyed that to God, in that moment, you became a member of the body of Christ, the church universal. Now in our church, you become a member of our church when two things happen. You have to be saved, you have to be baptized, or three things, and you have to cl- complete the new member class. That's what makes you a member of our church. Now, the new member class just tells you what we believe, because if you don't believe what we believe, then you don't need to be here. You need to be where you believe what they believe. And so that's part of it, the completion of that new member's class. But it's the act of baptism that kind of seals the deal. When you're fully immersed under the water, walking down the aisle and saying you want to join doesn't make you a member here. It makes you want to be a member here, but it doesn't actually make you a member. But when it comes to the church universal, that moment that you prayed and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became in that instant a part of the body of Christ. You have a kindred spirit with fellow believers all around the world, regardless of what language they speak or what church they might be a part of. And now the New Testament describes this transaction of becoming a member as the filling of the Holy Spirit. That when you accept Christ in that moment, you become filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it may be some ecstatic feeling. You may feel tingly all over. It may be just a, a, a mental awareness. It may be something that you become aware of over time. But whether you're aware of it in an instant or become aware of it over time, the truth of the matter is the moment when you accept Christ as the, your Lord and Savior, Ephesians 4.1 says that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's that fast. It's that quick. That when you say, yes, Lord, He fills you and says, yes, you're mine. It, it happens so fast, you can't see it happen. It's instantaneous. It's the moment that that comes off of your heart, your lip, your mind. In that instant, 
you're joined with the body of Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that happens the instant you believe in Jesus Christ. Now, all Christians are members of Christ's spiritual body, the church. And he's the head of that organization worldwide throughout all time. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that's the boss. He's the beginning. Now, you may think that, well, it's the pastor or the deacons or the trustees or church council that in our setting that, that, that's in charge, and that's not true. Every single one of us submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. All of us want to know what God wants us to do, and we do the best of our ability to discern His will, and then we all work together trying to fulfill God's will and God's command that we might bring Him glory through this place. He truly is in charge of our organization called South Jefferson Baptist Church. He truly is. We all submit to His Lordship, every single one of us. Now, in the Greek, uh, this word in charge or head or beginning, uh, it, it really means source in the original languages or origin, as well as leader or ruler and, and boss. So we, he is all those things. He's the ruler, the leader, the boss, but he's also the origin. He's also the source. And, and Jesus Christ, as the source of the church, expresses itself as a body. Now, Paul called Jesus the beginning. This helps us understand something about the church and about Jesus. And it's that Jesus has priority in time as far as the church con is concerned. That Jesus was the start of it. Jesus was the beginning of the church. The church did not exist until Jesus. Prior to Jesus, there was no church. And so when Paul says Jesus is the beginning, it means that he's the source, he's the origin. So if you could trace back through time and find wherever the first the church started, there in that pulpit, it's Jesus. That's where it started. It starts with him. And so that's why when we, as ministers, as leaders in our church and in churches around the world, when we say we submit to the Lordship of Christ, what we're saying is that we acknowledge that he's the founder. He's the originator. He's the source. It's none of us. We'll come and go. But he stands in that pulpit forever as the leader of this church, of this, this organization. And today, it still is his operation. This is still Christ's church. And as the head of the church universal, the head of this church, Jesus supplies us with life through his spirit. The excitement that we feel when we get together during the handshake time. I was, there was so much giggly commotion going back on back there. You know what that was? That was a movement of the Holy Spirit. That's what that was. That was an affirmation of kindred spirits being together, sharing, conversing, loving one another. This, I thought I was going to have to come down here and put somebody in jail. Today, I didn't know what was going on. They were, and I was thrilled. All I could do is sit at my desk and just laugh and get tickled at how happy they were inside that room. Now, I don't know what they were talking about, but I can tell you, I wanted to be in there. But I can't. I'm a guy. You at least got to be a gal to get in that room. I mean, you could peek in, but you can't stay there. But I still wanted to be a part of it. See, God gives people like us, just like you, like me, like Jacqueline, like Logan, Charles, TJ, you, our deacons, our trustees, our Sunday school teachers like Sherry and, and Gary and Mike and, and 
Jerry and all our different Sunday school teachers around down the children's department. He gives us people just like that and gifts people just like that so that this church functions properly. Now, in truth, you have been placed in this church. If you're a member of this church, God called you to it. You didn't just pick it out. There was a tug in your heart. Hey, that place fits me. I like that place. I, I feel like I belong here. This feels like family. Well, you might have thought that was something up in your heart, but that really wasn't. That was the Holy Spirit affirming to you, this is where I want you. This is where I need you. And regardless of our age, regardless of our education, our stature, where we live, if God has placed us here, and I believe with all my heart that God's placed you here or you wouldn't be here. And he placed you here because you bring something to this gift mix that nobody else does. And if I've ever said anything, it's none of us is as smart as all of us. And none of us can work as good as all of us. None of us can serve as well as all of us. There are no long rangers in the ministry. Never has been. Or there was one. Jesus Christ. He cut the path alone. But after him, we're all just in the gang. We're part of the posse to serve him. And you've been placed here, honestly, to serve Jesus where you're needed. And you're needed. Every person in this room is needed. And through his word, then Jesus feeds us, he cleans his church, he makes us ready and fit for his kingdom. Now, no believer on earth is the head of the church. And I'll say that over and over. That position is reserved exclusively for Jesus Christ. Yes, there are leaders, and there are religious leaders. There's, I'm a religious leader, but I answer to him. Jacqueline's a religious leader. She does not answer to me, oh, maybe temporarily, but ultimately she answers to him. When her life is over, it's not going to be me up there asking, Jacqueline, what have you done? It'll be the Lord asking Jacqueline, what have you done? Helps us understand that, that, that he's in charge, and one day he'll ask you the same thing. Now, there are religious leaders who have founded denominations and churches, but even then, they're not the boss or the leader. Even if they created a denomination, like John Wesley and the Methodists, they might have been the founder, but they're not the leader. It's Jesus Christ. The church is made up of all true believers, universal. We actually know when it was born. It was born on Pentecost. We can actually go to the book of Acts and see the birthday of the church. We know that it was 40 days after the resurrection. I mean, you can find it in Scripture. When the church was literally born, and it was born through Jesus Christ. It was then that the Holy Spirit came and licked and, and baptized the people. In the King James, it says that the tongue of flames licked on, on their head with, you know, and just give us that image of being lit on fire for God's glory, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, just because there's one body in this world, it doesn't mean that, we, uh, that there's no need for a local body of believers, because the truth is that's how God functions through his body, because God wanted to make sure that there was a flavor for everybody. And so you got the flavor that tastes like a Baptist. And so if that's your inclination to like that flavor, then you know what? There's a Baptist church for you. There's some churches that got the flavor and the taste of a Catholic. 
And if, if God wants to connect with you and, and to walk closely with you and he knows that you like that flavor, he's going to connect you with the Catholic Church. It may be that, that you got the flavor of a Methodist or Episcopalian or Presbyterian or, or whatever flavor it is that you have in your unique personality. God's got a church to match your personality wherever it is. And that's the beauty of it. God doesn't want anybody excluded from his church universal. I would never stand in this pulpit and condemn a New Testament denomination. Who am I to tell God that he doesn't know what he's doing, creating all these different flavors and varieties for different people? Stephanie and I were, drove past our Catholic church in uh, Mount Washington a Friday uh, on the way home from the funeral home, and we commented about how they're growing. And I told Stephanie, I said, you know, I could worship in there. wouldn't bother me at all. Wouldn't bo- I, I could worship God anywhere where God is worshiping spirit and truth. It doesn't matter. Labels are nothing. We're the one who makes labels. This is all God's family. And I say that because we want to alienate ourselves from other people because they say they don't believe like us. Well, we don't believe like them. Who knows who's right? God does. We belong to the church universal. But that does not release us from our responsibilities to the local church. For us, it's South Jefferson Baptist Church. We've got a responsibility here. Now, the truth is, I cannot minister to this whole church. I can't. I can't do it. Now, I can strengthen and build up the whole church from this pulpit because I can talk to you all at one time and try to build you up all at one time. But I can't minister to every single person every single day on an individual. I just can't. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough me to go around. I can't do it. Do you know how God does that? He raises us all up. You cannot minister to every single person in this church. You can't. God doesn't expect you to. But, all of us together can minister to the whole church and not leave a single person out. It takes all of us working. It takes all of us rowing. There's no empty seats on the bus of the church. Everybody's working. Now, Jesus Christ, I've said this, and I'll say it again, is the head of the church. He's the beginning of the church. Paul also tells us he's the firstborn among the dead. Now, people will point out, want to point out and say, well, that's just not true. The Bible's lying. Well, let's think about this. Paul did not say that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead because he wasn't. We know that. There are people in the Old Testament raised from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead. Peter raised people from the dead. We know Paul raised people from the dead. We know that other people have been raised from the dead. And we know that Jesus wasn't the first. But he is the first in importance of people being raised from the dead. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. That when it comes to the importance of people who have been raised from the dead, Jesus is of the first importance of anyone who's ever been raised from the dead. Because without the resurrection from the dead, there could be no resurrection for anybody else. Jesus had to be resurrected. He had to conquer death. If Jesus could not conquer death, then he could not raise anyone else from the dead because death would remain in charge. Jesus had to conquer death. And he did. Now, Paul used the word born in connection with the word death in the same sentence. And these are really two opposite ends of the spectrum. They don't fit together. They're opposite places. You can't be born and dead at the same time. You are either born or you are dead, one or the other. Now, think about this. The tomb where, and this, I wish this was my thought. It's not my thought. I read this somewhere. 
or I may have heard it in class, I don't remember. The tomb where Jesus was laid, you know that tomb in Jerusalem, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? The tomb where Jesus was laid was the womb from which Jesus proclaimed victory over death. That tomb was the birthplace of victory because Jesus raised his head and proved that he conquered death. It's the birthplace of victory. Yes, it held our Savior's body, but that tomb was the birthplace of victory over death. I'm going to the bottom page, guys. That's why Luke wrote that God raised him from the dead. Why? Freeing him from the agony of death. You ever think about Jesus being in agony while he was dead? He was in agony. Because, look at this, read this part with me. I, I love this sound. Because, read this with me, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is supreme. He has he is the Lord over all things in heaven and on earth. He reconciled everything through his death. And that brings us to the theme of this passage of Scripture, in verse 18, so that in everything he might have supremacy. When Jesus conquered death, he conquered the one thing that could not be conquered by anybody else. He defeated death. And that was God's purpose in causing and making his son and to be the Savior of the world, the Creator and the Head of the church, was to make Him supreme over all things. And that's what demonstrates His supremacy. Because He conquered the one thing that could never, ever be defeated. And that was death. And we know that He was truly dead because we know in Scripture, we just read that He was in agony in that death. He was dead. Totally, completely dead dead. Christ is all and in all. Now the false teachers of Colossus, they could never give Jesus the place of supremacy. According to their philosophy, Jesus was only one of many appearances from God. They believed he wasn't the only way to heaven. In their thinking, similar to today, Jesus was just one rung on the ladder leading up to God. But we know that that's a bunch of baloney. Because if there's other way to get to God, then Jesus is not supreme. You can't be one of the supremes. If you're going to have a supreme, there can only be one supreme. There can't be a supreme one and a supreme two. One of them, you can't do that. It's only one supreme. Jesus, if he's not Lord of all, then he cannot be Lord at all. And when Jesus conquered death, he proved that he was Lord of all. Because he conquered death, it could not hold him. If it could not hold him by Inference, we understand that it was trying to hold him. Death was doing everything it could do to keep Jesus dead. It was holding on to him, trying to keep him in the grave. It was holding him down. It was fighting and resisting, trying to keep Jesus dead. And Jesus said, shut up. And he got up out of that grave 
and he walked out in victory and looked back in death and said, listen, I got your keys. They're not yours anymore. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave, and now he holds the keys of all things. He is supreme in all things. Now Paul is proving that Jesus is the Savior, so you should never doubt it. He is your Savior. And if He's not the Savior of all of you, then He's not the Savior of any of you. Of the total person. Now, if you look at this carefully, Paul's really teaching us that there's a relationship that Jesus has with lost people. With the universe and with all believers. Verses 19 and 20 tells us a little bit about His relationship with God. Back in verse 13, Jesus, Paul had already said that Jesus was his dear son. But the truth is, and I'm going down to number C, page 6, Jesus Christ is God, bottom line, is what Paul's trying to help us understand. And because he's Lord over death, that's the last enemy, he's able to do what no person could ever do, break free from death. People who have had near-death experiences just got near death. They didn't really die. Because if death really gets a hold of you, you stay dead. Only Jesus has defeated and resurrected from the dead. You can go to any funeral home you want to or all around this world. And you can sit in front of that casket all day and all night long and they're not going to move. They're not going to raise up. won't happen. Only one has conquered death. That's why Jesus stayed dead three days. He wanted everybody to know he was really dead. He wasn't just faking it. Now, the natural mind of the sinner is at war with God. If you're lost today, that's you. I want you to think about this. Jesus is able to reconcile lost sinners to a holy God. And we'll close with this. The first man and the first woman sinned. In that sinning, Adam and Eve declared war on God. The lines were drawn in the sand. War was open. Now, spiritual war. But they declared war on God. But I want you to notice something. And this ought to give you cold chills. When you think about your own forgiveness and you want to talk about how many bad things you've done, frankly, God doesn't care if you know His Son. It's in the past. It's done. Frankly, God doesn't care if you're doing it today because you're forgiven. But I want you to notice something. And and this gives me cold chills every time I think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned, they declared war on God. But I want you to notice something. God never declared war on them. That's not what God did. Instead of God, Adam and Eve declaring war against God, instead of God saying, okay, I'm going to fight you right back, that's not what God did. Scripture, even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. They declared war on God. God did not declare war on them. Instead, he made a covering for their sin. I'm like, oh my goodness. If God did that to Adam and Eve, the first people that declared war on him, then I'm out of my mind if I think he hasn't forgiven me for all the little penny-ante things that I've done, all the bad stuff. God has forgiven you, folks. You're forgiven. That's it. Don't carry around the garbage where Satan tries to tell you, oh, you've messed up here and you've messed up there. And God, that is a bunch of baloney. You can't even be hinted at some kind of badness because you are without blemish, free from accusation. 
Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And because he wants his church pristine and white, without spot, without blemish. Now, if you're lost today, you might be sincere. You might be a, a leader in this church. But if you're lost today, you're at war with God. And God is doing everything he can to cover your sin. Now, for us, it's through the shed blood of Christ. But there'll be a day come when he'll quit trying to cover that sin. And he'll let you enjoy the choice that you've made. He will let you. See, God doesn't send anyone to hell. We choose to go there. God doesn't send anyone to heaven either. We choose to go there. Now, you could choose to go to heaven or you can choose to go to hell. The choice is up to you. And if you want to choose hell, God exercises free will in his sovereignty and allows you to choose the hell that he does not want you to go to. But if you don't want to be saved, he won't make you. You're at war with God. We're going to sing him invitation. As they're coming, guys, I want to go to this next slide, page 7. This is Colossians 1.20. Come on up. Through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things in heaven and things on earth, by mark, making peace through his shed blood. What this means is Christ solved the sin problem for every single person that ever has lived since that day or ever will live. He's the head. Let's stand together. If he's not your Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all.